0: Holy shit. We're back.
1: This is Contact Mike. Hello. 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 Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Doi. So we've been away for a while, but we're back.
2: What have you been doing?
0: Uh, I got a new job.
2: I
1: ran a festival. I got really
2: sick. Go team. It's May. It's May. It's 2017. 2017. We took a big break. We took a big break. 2017 is going to work a bit differently.
1: We'll still bring you a season of episodes. And the people will be amazing and their stories truthful and beautiful.
2: It just might not be every month because life is short and we try to prioritise things like sleep and picnics and improvised harmony singing.
1: (laughs) So back to April when we talked to this guy.
3: For fuck's sake, you know, I'm just trying to be a humble monkey.
1: We talk to each other. And this is What Happened
0: in Your World.
3: Chapter 1
2: This world has changed since we spoke last. 400 chickens in New South Wales have found new homes, for one thing. The chickens are all about two years old and they weren't laying enough eggs, so the farmer was going to have them destroyed and their bodies turned into fertiliser. That's how farms work. But then this lady named Julie put out a message on Facebook asking if anyone could take some chickens and within two days, all 400 had new homes. So, that's new. So are Rosie's glasses. That's my niece. Last year, her parents discovered that she couldn't see to the other side of the playground and she got the pinkest glasses in the shop at the time. But this year's glasses are blue, so we're all hopeful that maybe the pink era is coming to a close. Other things are new too. In one hospital, a new human came into the world at exactly the same time that an old one departed just down the hall. One room was very loud, full of noise and colour and equipment. The other was quiet. Just breathing. In... Then it stopped. In Malaysia, an MP and former Sharia judge has told Parliament that women should marry their rapists if they want to avoid a bleak future. Perhaps through marriage they can lead a healthier, better life, he said. And the person who was raped? She will have a husband at least. Honestly, I'm not sure if this is new. Perhaps it was the first time that the MP has said this, but it isn't the first time women have heard it.
1: Chapter 2.
3: I do recall my mum saying, you know, it's a cult.
2: As we grow up, we all look for meaning in our lives.
3: Name, rank and serial number? (laughs) Which name?
1: This is Luke. Kieran used to play in Luke's band. They were called the Green Hatch Effect. They played blues and soul and more blues. One day in February, when we were both off being annoyingly busy... Kieran went to talk to Luke. Luke's family weren't religious.
3: I remember asking them, what is this God and what does it mean and how does it react or how does it play in our world and, you know, how are we affected by it? I do remember my father just saying, ask your mum, And I guess with mum, her response would have been, whatever makes you happy.
1: After school, Luke started working in construction and was bringing in a shitload of money by 17-year-old standards. His life took on a certain routine.
3: Basically, it was work, pub, work, pub, pub, work. And you have a pizza joint around the corner that delivers a large pizza a slab of beer and a packet of Winfield Blues. Yeah, beer, a lot of just teenage drinking and partying. I had a loud amplifier and um, I think we were jamming and people from a block away said, really, the, the music's cool, but we live a block away. You know, a classic you know, 120 watt amplifier, maybe on three or four, it was loud.
0: When did you happen to cross the Hare Krishnas the first time?
3: I remember being in the city and seeing the Hare Krishnas singing and dancing on the street and looked like they were all having a good time and it sparked a curiosity.
2: Luke was busking for a living and living was tight. A fellow busker took him to Crossways, a Hare Krishna restaurant for meals.
3: I'm eating food for $2.50, wonderful.
2: And the price was enough to
1: make him a regular.
3: Not really into the philosophy or anything at that time at all.
1: The Hare Krishna, or the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, began in New York City in 1966 as a way to spread bhakti yoga. It's a kind of fusion which rode in on a beatnik wave of interest in Eastern religions. Essentially, it's an American movement based on Indian history and culture that takes selected passages from a couple of Hindu scriptures and dedicates the thoughts and actions of its followers towards pleasing Krishna.
3: I remember after work having a few drinks with the staff and I was approached by Hare Krishna. And for an hour, we were talking on the street. What did they say when they approached you? I think it was just a, a... General and genuine. Hi, how are you doing? You know, have you th- thought about yoga?
2: This was the standard playbook for approaching people in the street.
3: That was basically the introduction, in the sense of yoga was used as the branching type of thing, where you know it's like, so have you thought about the end of the world and the um, you know the seven levels of heavenly planets? No, I don't think anyone approached with that. We would just freak out. But so it was more a sense of, I guess, a question of, are you happy? And what do you do to make yourself happy?
1: Luke was given a copy of the Bhagavad Gita.
3: The Song of God, spoken by Lord Krishna on the battlefield to his disciple Arjuna before a massive battle.
1: At first, he used it to prop up his bookshelf, but as time passed and more $2.50 lunches were eaten, his interest was piqued.
3: I got a brick to replace the book and I started reading it.
1: Luke began going to Temple.
3: I guess I was impressed with the mood of the place, very vibrant, it was good food, it was free.
1: At first, he wasn't there as a devotee.
3: So I had met at Crossways a devotee, he was a musician. And he invited me just to have a jam. So we were playing, you know, Western music and eventually started chanting the Hare Krishna Manta over, you know, my funky blues. I was like, oh, yeah, cool, you know.
1: He'd go for the music, stay for the
2: evening meal. Then he got there in time for lunch and then for the morning talk. And then one night he woke up at 3 a.m.,
3: what the fuck am I doing waking up at three? I'm wide awake. Ah, oh, I just walk to the temple, won't I? So walk to the temple, their morning prayer started at four o'clock. All right, cool. I started doing that for months. I'll just get up at three in the morning. And see in this whole process, I was giving up smoking and drinking and eating meat, and so I was starting to follow the principles naturally.
2: This was Luke's life for six months, every day. Commuting from his flat in St Kilda, he began working around the temple and then at crossways.
3: Where was your mind at at that time? I guess it was becoming a lot more peaceful, especially that early 20s. I was drinking a lot, drinking, smoking a lot of dope. I was in and out of relationships a fair bit and I wasn't really that happy. Um, So I guess that elemental question of what am I doing? You know, this is making me happy, going to the temple and hanging out and, you know, improved my health because I'm not smoking and I'm not drinking and my head's a bit clear. And I guess being immersed in that, it just felt pretty natural. Luke
1: was spending all his time at the temple and his friends started asking, why don't you just move in?
0: Did your family know that you were spending more and more time there? Did they have opinions? Oh, yeah. Yeah?
3: <laughs> so there was a bit of objection from my family, quite a bit of surprise because I hadn't really mentioned it too much and all of a sudden, hey, I've shaved my head and I'm wearing robes now and I'm I'm going to be a monk full time. You know, it's, That's it. I'm... I'm moving into the temple. I'm becoming a full-time devotee.
1: This became his daily routine.
3: Okay, the whole day is, yeah, a lot of singing, a lot of chanting. From four in the morning, there's a morning prayer, singing. Then there's a few hours of chanting individually on the Tulsi beats. Tulsi is a sacred plant in India. You chant for a few hours. There's uh, a required amount of chanting to be done. It's like, uh, if you've got a flu, you take this amount. That's the recommended dosage. So, yes, there's a recommended amount of chanting to be done.
1: As well as being in the temple, devotees went out into the city to chant, dance and proselytise. This didn't always go super well.
3: Oh, yeah, a few punches and, you know... What? If you fuck off, you stupid cunts. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: Walking through the streets, they came across a guy crouched in a boxer's stance near Young and Jackson's.
3: He flung a punch at the singer, got him a bit, swung at me, and he swung at me again, and unfortunately for him, there were some Russian devotees with us, and one of them was an ex-commando in the Russian army. And within... Oh, God Jesus, you know, a second. The commando did a handstand and kicked him into the vicinity of the bouncers. And, you know, the look on the bouncers' face was like, what the fuck is going on here? We did not... Ha- We'd never got hassled after that. No-one on the street attacked us ever again. He was like, don't fuck with the hurries, man.
2: Luke was initiated.
3: What's that like? Oh, you yeah. know... It's pretty cool.
1: Luke was given a new name.
3: So my spiritual name is Loka Guru Gora Das. So Das means servant. Now, Loka in Sanskrit means planets or universe. Uh, So Loka Guru, uh, spiritual master of the universe, and Gora, Gora is that golden form, Lord Chaitanya. So it means that I'm the servant of Lord Chaitanya, which is the spiritual master of the universe. Right, so no pressure. No pressure, you know.
2: As part of his initiation, he took four vows. No gambling, no intoxication, and a commitment to vegetarianism and celibacy.
3: Celibate. Completely
0: celibate. Was that an easy transition to make into, you know, sort of formally vowed celibacy?
3: No. No? No. Um, So for a single man who's being celibate, a girl of beauty walks in and um, your body reacts to that. So, you can imagine, oh shit, I've got an erection, oh fuck! <laughs> and, you know, and it's like, oh, hurry, Chris, hurry, Chris. go down, go down! So, yes, there were sort of times where I think, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, I'm just trying to be a humble monk here and But, you know, it shows you in the sense of how ingrained those things are.
1: Then there was proselytising on the streets and there were summer days and girls in light cotton dresses showing more than a glimpse of thigh and breast.
3: For most guys, they'd be like, wow, this is great. For a monk, it is not. It is, I learnt how to look at people in the eye, man.
2: It got easier, but faith is hard, particularly faith in an age of proof and science.
1: Remember, this was a religion formed in 1966 New York. And just three years later, the followers watched the moon landing, this giant leap in our understanding of the universe and our place in it. Like the rest of the world, they watched the wobbly black and white image and heard the crackling voices. The Christians knew about the moon and what should be on it, according to their teachings. And so when they saw the American flag planted on barren ground, they declared it a hoax, but not perhaps for the same reasons as other conspiracy theorists.
3: Srila Prabhupada was giving a talk and some of his devotees were in the next room watching the moon landing. So here they are, they're on the moon. Prabhupada simply said, "Uh, do you see the crystal palaces? No, we don't. Oh... They're not on the moon.
2: After a few years, Luke started to question things. There was a girl at the temple he had a giant crush on and he was finding some of the dogma hard to see past. He went to India in full monk robes to find answers and refresh his faith.
1: As they walked through villages, they were frequently met with anger.
3: There was definitely animosity. What are you doing here? Go back to your own country.
1: And the people who weren't actively angry were just really confused.
3: How did you do this? How did you come to take on our philosophy, our way of life and our culture? Why are you doing what we are pretty much on the verge of wanting to disregard and let go? India was a turning point for Luke. Things happened in India which led to me very much questioning my... Desire to remain in the movement and desire to remain a devotee.
2: The culmination of his trip was meeting with his own spiritual master. Luke had questions for him. He needed guidance. When it came time to speak to him, Luke just dove in.
3: Uh, By the way, I just sort of want to... I'm thinking about leaving the temple and getting married and, you know, sort of like... that was nothing. Just silence. Talk to your temple president turned his back, went to bed. My spiritual master basically said, "Uh, don't ask me, it's out of my hands, you know. It's like, fuck man, this is really important shit that I want to talk to you about. Don't bloody pass me off. I was upset, I was angry. I was thinking, "Right, fuck. So all I've got to show you for... The five years that I've been in the temple and eight years of being actually involved, I've got my robes and I've got my chanting beats and I've got a name. What the fuck am I doing?
1: When Luke came home, he went straight to the girl and asked her to marry him. When you've been celibate for five years, there's no in-between.
3: I didn't know that when I was away, she'd been asked by five other people. But still, she told him yes. And then a month later she left without saying goodbye. So I was fucking heartbroken and I decided, you know what, I think it's, it's been good. I feel that I've done my best and I've given it a good shot.
2: Luke moved out of the
1: temple and into a share house with three women.
3: I just I have to fit in again to society.
1: He was still going to the temple. They had some opinions about his new life.
3: It's like, um, you're living in a harem. Um, no, I'm living with three women that are really nice people. So, you know, I'm, I'm maintaining my thing. But it's just that mentality. Oh, he's left now. So he's uh, he's gone off the wagon. He's shacking up in a harem. Yeah, it's orgies now. Yeah, that's all I do now. Oh, and it's just let meat, you know.
2: For the first eight months Luke was still following most of the vows, but one night he met an English girl. Yes,
3: I had a first beer and a first toke of a joint and had had sex. At you know, five, six in the morning, the birds are chirping, sort of thing. It's like, yes. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> All right.
2: The end was quiet. Perhaps it had been coming for so long now that the final moment had to be small like the full stop at the end of this sentence.
3: I just remember saying to the person that organised the roster for duties, it's like, I'm out of here, thank you very much. And I was like, oh, well, who's going to sweep the floors now? There's going to be at least 300 people that can quite qualify to sweep the floor. So it's OK. Think you'll be alright.
2: And that was it. Full stop. Chapter 3
1: I have a problem with this concept of the search for meaning. The whole idea of searching for the meaning of life is so fundamental to philosophy and humanity. But life doesn't inherently have meaning. It's like asking, what is the meaning of bread? Like bread doesn't have inherent meaning. It's just bread, but you can endow it with meaning. Bread is something that we use to connect with people and it's very symbolic in a lot of religions, but bread doesn't mean anything. And life similarly doesn't mean anything. We have to endow it with meaning. So people going and searching for the meaning of life makes no sense. Searching for a meaning of life is fine, but I I, I dislike this idea that somewhere there is the meaning and you've just got to find it. So fuck you, Luke. <laughs> Didn't mean that to be as aggressive as it maybe came out.
0: I was reminded actually that like statistically speaking, the world over, religiosity is on the rise. You know, we we tend to think in our Western secular liberal bubble that religion is kinda over. It's really not. It's it's in fact getting bigger all the time.
1: I feel like as far as uh, religions or movements or cults go, Hare Krishna is pretty, pretty kind. Really, like most of it is just about behaving in a way that's actually fairly sensible and um, and trying to to live kind of a, a quiet, thoughtful life. And I'm really interested in in the chanting. I I've seen the Hare Krishnas go past on a lot of occasions, and I was like, guys, get get some more lyrics. <laughs> but then when I was I was quite I used to um, go to church when I was younger and I went on a a church excursion to Planet Shakers, which is the Melbourne chapter of Hillsong, and as part of that service, which was globally fairly terrifying, um, and there were so many people there. It was in this huge concert hall and there were thousands of people there and they were playing these songs over and over and over again with extremely repetitive lyrics and extremely repetitive melodies and everyone was encouraged to just sing along and keep repeating these same words as the preacher um, got more and more heightened. Uh, and eventually something just kind of snapped in the room and people started speaking in tongues and crying and lying on the floor and like thrashing about. And I had this very strong sense of feeling that power wanting to take me away and having to really struggle to stay grounded. And I'd never really experienced the power of repetition and, and music in that way before. And it was really eye-opening and in that instance a bit frightening.
2: I'm really fascinated by new religions, by the mm. concept of religions that have come up in the last 20 years at the same time when science is making these massive shifts in mm. what we know about the universe. Mm. Because every religion has its, has its own flavour of crazy. Mm. But if it's a new religion, you don't have the justification of ignorance to explain how they reached certain conclusions, particularly around creation Mm. and the beginning of life and the planets and the universe around us.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it makes you wonder, is there any sort of divorcing um, systems of religion from like cosmogenesis? You can't really talk about religion without sort of saying well where did we come from how did the world get to be here and so there's no there's no kind of religion of the future or there's no kind of religion that can only ever be grounded in the present there's always something that you know for it to have gravity it has to reach back into the past and, and borrow historical authority from somewhere so you know even though Hare Krishna was started in the 60s they, they pulled on a millennia old religious system as the sort of the mark of authority as the the base that they were building on and i think no matter which religious movement you talk about you're probably going to get into a a similar thing where they have to say well of course our religion has always been true since the beginning of time therefore it reaches back in that way
2: i think also the other thing with new religions is just the level of scrutiny we're able to have for the makers that they're close enough that we can know that Elron Hubbard was a sci-fi writer. Like mm. we can analyse their intent based on what we know of their lives mm. whereas these older religions are far enough back that those details are foggy or if known at all and therefore can be shrouded with a certain degree of mysticism which can therefore equal respect mm. if not infallibility. Mm. Uh, and it's much harder to attribute Infallibility to some dude when we know his whole life. We can go and chat to someone that knew him and maybe knew he was a shit neighbour yeah. and yelled at neighbourhood kids or never took out his trash. You can find little shitty details about every human mm. that has lived in the last century or so, mm. <laughs> if you try hard. Mm. Those details have fallen away about the older makers.
1: I think there's something... Um quite appealing about the, the vows of Hare Krishna because they're very straightforward and they're very tangible. I think a lot of religion is kind of, believe this nonsensical idea, but saying to someone, you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't have sex, you can't gamble, you have to be a vegetarian. It's like, yep, those are things I can do and I can measure my success in whether I've achieved that thing. And I think since humanity began, everyone's been feeling like life is a bit too fast modern life is all a bit much and there's a bit too much information coming at us so I do understand how just saying like just just come and chant for two hours and don't have sex with anyone don't even think about it I can see how that would be appealing.
2: Times when I've not had sex for a long time I've I've found it quite frightening because I think the longer you go without having sex for me the more preposterous the idea of sex seems. It is an
1: outrageous thing to do.
2: Yeah, to put a part of another person inside your body, Mm. to have their head, like, in your bits. Like, it's really full on. It's Mm. so incredibly intimate. And if you haven't done that for a while, sex can seem very invasive Mm. when it hasn't happened for a long time.
0: Mm. Yeah. And you kind of build up this sort of uh, sense of sanctity of your personal space. And letting someone into it starts to feel like an ever weirder, more foreign more alien proposition like people talk about it like it's it's uh, something you can't live without you really really can live without it and it you know you can it can make you a bit sad living without it but it will not kill you um it may not make you stronger either but it certainly won't kill you like the thinking of sex as a need feeds into some pretty nasty stuff around toxic masculinity and around, you know, some men's sense of entitlement to sex that is something that they are owed. Um, And, you know, I think that that is built off this base of, well, it's a primal need and, you know, we can't control the fact that we need it and we can't live without it. And therefore, Mm. you know, it's something that someone has to provide you somehow. The world has to provide it to you somehow.
1: When I was... (laughs) <laughs> about oh like 15 16 I was a I was an ardent masturbator um and at a time when young girls don't really or certainly didn't when I was a young girl talk about masturbation we'd be on the bus with the boys and they'd be like oh yeah masturbate x times a day and then they'd turn to the girls and be like how often do you masturbate and they'd all all the girls would be like oh were gross never and I was like yeah oh no ne- oh dear oh man so much but no never oh. and so Lent was uh, was approaching and I was like I'm going to give up masturbating for Lent and the first week of that was like the hardest week of my life. Wow. <laughs> I remember sitting in class being like oh oh my god I think I might just explode. I'm just going to explode from like repressed sexual energy and then by the end of the 40 days which is not a very long time um, I was like oh great I can masturbate again and I was like I don't really want to. As it turns out, I'm fine. <laughs> Luke talks about uh, one of the questions that Hare Krishna asks people on the streets as a way of initiating conversation is: Are you happy and where do you find that happiness? So what's that for you guys? This was the thing that made me really happy yesterday
2: was I had this class. I'm teaching at university and one of my first-year classes yesterday had this massive 20-minute debate about the difference between translation and adaptation and I had to, at the end, be like, we have to stop, we have to stop and move on. But, like, for this 20 minutes with this class full of 18 and 19-year-olds, like, there was always five or six hands up at any one time and everyone just so wanted to get in on the thing. And so I think that, like, being around people that are really excited about what they're talking about Mm. and really, like discovering thoughts as they come to them fills me with happiness.
1: I think happiness is distinct from joy. Joy I experience fairly regularly, but it is by its inherent nature fleeting, and I think that's the right way to think about it. And happiness for me is is basically the same word as contentedness. And I think the the most contented I ever am is if I haven't drunk coffee and I go for a big swim and then I clean my room. And that's that's about as calm as I will ever get.
0: I get to kind of tap out of this question a little bit as you know, someone who's been treated for clinical depression for most of my adult life. Seeking happiness is, it, it's what everyone tells you you should do when you're diagnosed with depression. Just like, oh, you just need to find out what makes you happy and do that. And its it's so slippery and so elusive when you frame it as the central goal of your life. Like, how do I find happiness? gotta find happiness where is the happiness what is the thing that is the happy you just need to do stuff keep busy see friends um make things
2: take medication
0: um yeah take take the drugs uh, meditate and um exercise and like you need to live um and happiness is this emergent property that comes out of you engaging with the world and living
2: Contact Mike is a podcast about people by Sarah Walker, Fleur Kilpatrick, produced by Kieran Ruffles. Come find us on Facebook, Twitter, and on iTunes. This season, we'll be bringing you stories from around the world. Next time, it's San Francisco. This has
1: been Contact Mike.
2: This episode this ends. Episode ends now. now.
1: Now. I am a robot from space.